Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. India is in crisis. Death and devastation are sweeping across the country as India grapples with a brutal second wave of COVID-19. India's second wave is crippling the country, fueled by that double variant. People dying waiting for beds, people dying waiting for oxygen, people dying on mattresses outside hospitals, and people dying because they have not been uh, vaccinated. 400,000 cases a day. And many are saying that there's worse to come. How did one of the world's biggest economies, the country producing the bulk of our COVID vaccines, end up in a state of such lethal chaos? And will the crisis have a lasting impact on the political future of Prime Minister Modi? Criticism and the condemnation of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his government's failed response continues to grow louder. There is so much anger from all sides. It's reached a point where if you get sick now, you're potentially in real trouble. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, India's deadly second wave. It's been appalling, frankly. I've not seen anything like it. That's Hugh Tomlinson, South Asia correspondent for The Times. One of the big hospitals, just 20 minutes drive from our house, was one of these hospitals that put out an SOS that it was two or three hours away from running out of oxygen. So Hugh went to the hospital to speak to some of the people waiting in the car park, hoping for a bed. While we were waiting, a small family car skidded to a halt outside the emergency entrance. This family leapt out, pulled out this young man from the back seat with an oxygen cylinder. The oxygen cylinder was empty. And he looked no more than 25, much, much younger than me. They hauled him onto a trolley. I could see he was just convulsing on this trolley. Couldn't breathe, literally like a fish out of water. Dying, mm. just dying in front of me, gulping on nothing at all. And the other people who were sort of milling around the car park as well, sort of, you know, you could just see it. Everyone, everyone backed away. The, a woman, I assumed it was his mother, followed him in screaming for the doctors to save him. And male relatives who'd sort of driven the car just collapsed outside and were, were weeping in the car park. It was the helplessness of it. I've covered conflicts where you see injuries from water shells or from live rounds, from military crackdowns or from war. But a young man just suffocating in front of me outside one of the best hospitals in South Delhi was really shocking. Mm. If you do get it in Delhi today, rich or poor, you will be lucky to get the treatment that you need. Hugh is based in India's bustling capital city, New Delhi, in the north of the country. It's a city that has been rocked by India's brutal second wave. 
The virus now sort of striking indiscriminately across Delhi. We have friends and neighbours testing positive left and right. Right now in India, over 400,000 people are testing positive for COVID-19 every day. Three people I knew died over the weekend. You don't get to see people, you don't get to say goodbye, obviously. And people just vanish. They're just gone. You sort of, you learn about it on social media. It's in the building above and to the left and right and so everywhere on our street. You fear that any wrong move or just a bit of bad luck could let the virus in the door. You simply don't know if you've brought it home with you or not. And you just spend the next sort of three or four days sort of, you know, frantically checking your oxygen levels and hypochondria sets in. Any flush in temperature, which happens all the time here because it's nudging 40 degrees, is interpreted as of the onset of a fever. There's not a household in the city at this point that, that is unaffected by this. No one in India has seen anything like this. Amrit Dhillon is a journalist. Like Hugh, she's based in New Delhi and she's been writing about the crisis for The Times. The past fortnight has been a period of unremitting horror and loss for people. The whole system has been engulfed. The rich, for the first time in their lives, are beginning to understand what it's like to feel absolutely helpless the way the poor have always felt. There was nothing available. Hospital beds, oxygen, basic medicines, steroids, everything is in short supply. It's been like nothing anyone's ever seen. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your uncle is. It doesn't matter how well connected you are and how much money and assets you have. It's not going to get you a bed. It's not going to get you oxygen. Amrit has experienced the difficulties and desperation at first hand. A friend of mine, her father was 92 years old. He tested positive. The doctor, when he spoke to her, panicked her completely when he said, listen, you're not going to be able to find a bed. I can tell you that right now in Delhi. What I suggest you do is put your dad in the car with some oxygen, if you can find it, drive to Jaipur and see if you can find a hospital bed there. Now, Jaipur is 200 miles from Delhi. It's a six-hour drive. Oh, wow. And so for her, the idea of putting her dad, frail as he is, through the fatigue of a six-hour car ride to end up in a city she doesn't know well, to drive around the streets trying to find a hospital at a hospital bed with oxygen was just too much. She decided that she would stay put and hope for the best. And that's what a lot of people in New Delhi have been doing in the past fortnight, feeling helpless and hoping for the best. It's day 12 of his getting COVID. This morning, he's got problems with his blood pressure and he needs oxygen. So all morning, she's been on the phones. I've been on the phones trying to get an oxygen concentrator, which is a gadget which you can keep at home to help patients. And there's, no one picks up the phone. This whole city is deluged with people calling for whatever they need, a bed or oxygen. I've been trying all morning. No one's picked up the phone. If they have, they do not have an oxygen concentrator. And never mind plan B, no one has a plan A. Because what do you do if he develops serious respiratory problems? Where will she take him? Whilst reporting on the chaos and confusion as the virus ripped through the country, Amrit herself woke up on the 21st of April with an aching body and a slight fever. Of course, my heart sank. I remember my first thought was, uh-oh, if this is COVID-19, 
this is not the right time or place to get the virus. Given what I knew about the shortage of everything and how people were dying on benches outside hospitals, it was a very frightening thought. But three days later, Umrith tested positive for the virus. That first night, I went to bed and I thought, okay, I don't feel too bad at the moment. But we know how this virus works. We know that symptoms get suddenly worsen. And I thought, what if I wake up at night and I'm struggling to breathe? I'll call my son. He'll call my friend who happens to be a doctor. She's a gynecologist. Her name is Anita. And so I thought, well, I'll just have to leave it to Anita. If she can manage to wangle a bed for me somehow, miraculously, great. If she doesn't, then... That thought remained unfinished, because how could I finish that thought? I didn't know what could happen. Umrith was eventually able to get in touch with a doctor via WhatsApp. He told me which tests to get done, what I should do, what I should look out for, any symptoms that might indicate that I should contact him. And I have to say, what doctors are doing at the moment is they're absolutely burnt out and exhausted. They're working all day in their PPE kits, struggling to treat patients when their hands are tied behind their back because there's so little oxygen. Then when they finish their shift and they go home, what many of them then do is this, is talk to people like me and advise me on what I should do, what tests I need to get, what medication and vitamins I need to have. So on both occasions that I consulted Dr. Sunil Kohli, he responded to me at 1.30 in the morning. That was the only time he had. Wow. It's bad enough getting COVID anywhere at any time. But what's upsetting and crushing at the moment for so many people is that they're not dying of COVID. They're dying for lack of oxygen. They're dying for lack of treatment. And those deaths seem to be completely unnecessary. Luckily... Umrid's case of COVID remained mild, and she's now made a full recovery. When the pandemic first hit last year, it was predicted that the virus would decimate India. For all the obvious reasons, the 1.4 billion population, the very dense uh, living conditions, the lack of medical facilities, were giving predictions that said millions and millions, tens of millions of Indians were likely to die. But in the end, surprisingly... The first wave in India was milder than expected. Of course it was serious and there was a serious loss of life. But India, for some weird reason, in the first wave, got off really, really lightly. At one point in India, around December, India was recording just 10,000 fresh infections a day. The medical system had come under stress. People did struggle a little bit to get treatment. But... There was no oxygen crisis, and everyone in the end did get a bed. Like Britain, India introduced a lockdown in March last year. Announced by the Prime Minister Narendra Modi at literally four hours' notice. That's Hugh again. Which meant that tens of millions of migrant workers who've moved particularly to major cities from poorer states and searching for work were put out of work overnight. And so that launched this mass exodus of workers across the country. God. Tens of millions of people attempting to leave the cities to get back to their villages. Presumably taking the virus with them to other parts of the country. That was the fear. In many cases, state borders were slammed shut. In actual fact, had the workers been allowed to go then, when India had 
relatively few cases at the time, the consequences might not have been so bad. As it turned out, state borders were slammed shut, and a lot of these workers were crammed into camps along state borders while local authorities were trying to work out what to do with them. When the pressure on local authorities became too great a few weeks later, they were finally released. Only, of course, in that time, the virus had run rampant in these camps. Workers who didn't have the virus when they were laid off had picked it up while they were sort of uh, stuck in transit and then did carry it back to rural areas. It was catastrophically managed. But even then, the first wave peaked at about 100,000 cases a day. That's well short of the numbers that India is seeing now. It's been a tsunami of cases that have engulfed the whole medical system. That's Amrit again. If you look at the curve, it's just vertical. The highest figure we reached a few days ago was 400,000 cases a day. Wow. Yes, and many epidemiologists are saying that this is not the worst, that there's worse to come. The figures of fresh infections and the death toll are both going to rise. And some are saying that we're looking at the beginning of June, maybe the middle of June, before the figures start coming down. One of the most pressing challenges for doctors on the front line is a severe shortage of oxygen. Some of the top best hospitals in the Indian capital have been saying frantically that we have enough oxygen to last about four hours. We have enough to last two hours or one hour. Now, you know that without oxygen, your patients are simply going to choke to death. They're going to die. For doctors across the capital, it's added a harrowing helplessness and urgency to the treatment of an already deadly virus. Watching patients die as oxygen supplies dwindle has placed them under so much pressure that it's been reported that some have even killed themselves because of the strain. The case of one young doctor in one of Delhi's best-known hospitals in particular forced people to acknowledge the desperation felt by many. His colleagues at the hospital say that he was working uh, with COVID-19 patients in intensive care and every day he was uh, crushed by the fact that he was losing between about five to seven patients a day for lack of oxygen. He was a young man married and he's left a two-month-old baby. Doctors and nurses have said we are at breaking point. And also the stress of having to tell people that their loved one has died. I was talking to a young doctor um, at a hospital here in Delhi. She's only 26. She had to tell a woman in her 60s that her son and daughter, who were in the same hospital, had died. And the doctor told me that the woman, when she heard this, simply lost the will to live. She died a week later herself. In another case, a young man who was her age, about 26 years old, when it became clear to him that he wasn't going to survive, he said to her, I'm not going to be able to sit the accountancy exams that I studied so hard for. India is awash with stories of heartbreaking loss, of lives cut short, dreams unfulfilled. And in the heat of the crisis, it's a country that's barely begun to mourn its losses. It's a far cry from the scene last year. So why has the virus ripped through the population, wreaking so much death and destruction, when the first wave in India was so calm by comparison? No one is clear about this. It seems to be that there are 
very, very virulent new variants at play, which seem to be driving this insane surge in cases that India has seen. Uh, one of them, of course, is a UK variant, which accounts for a reasonable percentage of the cases. But there are also other variants, double mutations that have been found in India. The double mutation that's been found in India involves two different variants in the virus coming together. It's thought to be more transmissible than the original virus, and World Health Organization scientists have warned that the vaccines currently being used might not provide immunity to it. But whilst the virus in India has only become more dangerous, people's behaviour around it had become far too relaxed. People misread the situation, ordinary people and experts and the government. What they felt at the end of last year, when everything seemed to be under control, India seemed to have miraculously escaped the worst, everyone thought that this is it, that this is over, and now life can go back to normal. So no one was prepared. How much of that preparation and warning the public should have been done by the government. And what does the crisis mean for India's strongman leader, Narendra Modi? For more incisive foreign coverage, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. India is in the grip of a deadly second wave of COVID-19. But after one of the toughest lockdowns last year... How did it lose control of the virus? As a raging pandemic tore across the country, thousands flocked to the streets for political rallies, with hardly a mask in sight. At one gathering, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi praised the turnout. Over the past few months, there have been election campaigns in five states in India. Now, if you were to see the photographs of those rallies that politicians have held, politicians from every party, you'll be horrified because as far as the eye can see in those photographs, there was a sea of humanity. 
Many people were not wearing masks. But really, politicians gave out very, very confusing signals. On the one hand, Prime Minister Narendra Modi would be saying to people, please observe all the rules. And then the next day, you'd see him addressing an election rally in Calcutta, West Bengal or elsewhere, addressing a massive rally and saying with great pleasure and delight, I've never seen such a big turnout. I'm thrilled to see you all. In addition to the election rallies, another event that accelerated the spread of COVID-19 was the Hindu Kum Mela festival. Which happens once every 12 years near the river Ganges in a town called Haridwar in North India. Around 8 million people over the course of about three weeks in April, on different days of course, turned up for that festival. Hardly anyone wore masks. This was allowed to go ahead by the government of that state, ruled by Narendra Modi's party. Does it now look like that's become a super spreader event? Of course it's become a super spreader. Think of all those millions who were there. Think of them all going back home, either to their small towns or to their villages, with the virus. It's devastating. Tell me about Prime Minister Modi. How has he responded to this crisis? That's very interesting because he said nothing. Really? In this situation when people are dying outside hospital gates, they're collapsing and dying in the backseat of their car outside a hospital while they're waiting to get oxygen. You would think that the Prime Minister would hold a press conference, talk to people, express his sorrow at the loss of life. He has said nothing. He may have shunned press conferences on the COVID situation, but every month, Prime Minister Modi puts out a podcast. I know. Everyone's at it. In that, he simply said that India had been hit by a storm that no one expected. But apart from that, Mr Modi has not given one single statement to indicate that he understands what people have gone through. The Indian health minister did have to face the press, but he used the opportunity not to warn people about the scale of the crisis, but instead to refute the widespread and well-documented reports of an oxygen shortage. Another minister, instead of sympathy or solidarity, said that um, New Delhi shouldn't be a crybaby over oxygen. A crybaby? So the reaction of the government has been absolutely extraordinary. And never mind information. What about accountability? There has not been uh, a single resignation. No minister, no civil servant, and none of the doctors and the experts on the various panels which are advising the government and who clearly failed to see that this was coming. Nothing, no sympathy, no reassurance, no strategy. Is there a sense that the political leadership in India have really messed this up? The government is coming out of this very poorly. That's Hugh again. The reaction from the government to circle the wagons and throw everything they can into a defence of Modi himself is very telling. The strategy at the moment appears to be to throw almost anyone and everyone under the bus, but to protect the leader at all costs. Narendra Modi has often been compared to Donald Trump for their brand of populist nationalism, their strongman tactics and their disdain for political convention. 
And now, like Trump, Modi has also drawn the ire of senior members of the medical establishment for his handling of the crisis. He's been accused of being a super spreader after he hosted mass political rallies where very few people wore masks. And his government is being blamed for failing to procure enough oxygen and losing their grip on vaccines too. State high courts in neighbouring Uttar Pradesh said this week that the oxygen crisis afflicting the nation's hospitals was tantamount to a genocide. So there is strong language being put about. You're starting to see dissent from within the ruling party, certainly among supporters of the ruling party, people who up to this point had felt that Modi could do no wrong because we're nearing a point where wealth alone is not necessarily enough to secure you a hospital bed. Wealthy hospitals, private hospitals, are reduced to begging on social media for basic oxygen supplies when their supplies are down to a matter of minutes. Ventilators blinking out because oxygen stores are gone is quite something else. This is affecting all layers of society all day, every day. Do you think it will seriously dent Modi's popularity? We will have to see... On a national level, and he still has three years before he has to face a national election, although his ruling party has lost key state elections in the last few days. Including a key election in the state of West Bengal. Mr Modi threw everything at that election. He was uh, very often campaigning when really most people expected them to be in Delhi at the height of this Mm. crisis, monitoring the situation. Mr. Modi's arch rival and regional leader called Mamta Banerjee, she and her party defeated Mr. Modi and the BJP in West Bengal just a few days ago. Please wear a mask. Didi's wearing a mask. Bhaipo's wearing a mask. Party leaders are wearing a mask at this point of time. That is Mamta Banerjee's first reaction after winning Bengal election says this is... If they'd got the vaccination drive right, they might have turned this around, but that too is struggling. After the first wave, India made headlines for donating vaccines to less developed countries. I mean, simple maths would have shown the government that if it wants to start vaccinating 70%, let's say, of India's 1.4 billion population, this is how many vaccines we're going to need. How many vaccine manufacturers do we have? We have two. We have the Serum Institute of Pune and we have a company called Biotech. That's it. I mean, how many vaccines can their factories produce a month? They knew that too. Now, anyone sitting down in the government could have worked out that, okay, as we work through the population, we're going to start off with those over 65, those with comorbidities, then we're going to get to those over 45, then we're going to start vaccinating people over the age of 18. And as we work through all these various stages and ages, this is the number that we will need to achieve our objective. But that calculation was simply not done. Had it been done, I don't think the government would have sent so many vaccines abroad. On May the 1st, India launched its third phase of the vaccination campaign. Everyone over the age of 18 is now eligible to be jabbed. So people are turning up there for the vaccine at the centre and uh, I'm afraid they're coming back home without getting a jab because there aren't enough vaccines. And this situation is not easy to fix quickly. It takes time to ramp up that production. It takes time to organise imports of other foreign vaccines. And so this shortfall of vaccines for India's population is going to be around for, for some weeks, if not months. There's this huge vaccine reluctance here. To address the suspicions, Narendra Modi has tried to spearhead the vaccine drive 
by getting his own jabs amid a flurry of publicity. But even when vaccine production is back where it should be, there will be hundreds of millions of people not inoculated. The cost of vaccines may still be prohibitive, which leaves us open to sort of more and sort of you know, newer and deadlier variants in the months and years to come. Mr. Modi's whole image and persona has been a man of action who gets things done. That's Amrit Dhillon again. He's been saying that the Congress Party, which ruled India for much of the last 60, 70 years, did nothing. I and the BJP now are going to put India on a new path to prosperity and development. But now we can see that in a crisis of this magnitude, he has not been able to deliver. He's been flailing and floundering, which is why I think so many ministers are not coming out to meet the press because they're not quite sure what to say, because they cannot finesse the situation. They cannot say that people are not dying. They can't say that people are getting oxygen when they aren't. The images are there on television and in the papers for everyone to see every day. I think there's no doubt that his reputation has been damaged. With the government struggling to control the narrative as well as the virus, what can we expect to see next? Poorer rural states uh, in the north and northeast are certainly emerging as a new front line. Whilst Hugh Tomlinson is in Delhi, which has seen the worst of the current wave, the virus is now rapidly spreading around the country. North of here, in neighbouring Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, two of India's poorest states, two of their most populous states, healthcare there is deeply impoverished. Epidemiologists are predicting that India's second wave will peak at half a million cases a day. We've spoken to people across the top of the of crematoria who say that the suspected COVID bodies, fatalities, are sort of five to ten times higher than official figures because it's only people who die of COVID in hospital who are being put on the official lists. People who are dying at home are not being registered as COVID deaths. And testing is also collapsing in, in many of these areas because the testing labs are overwhelmed by the scale of the crisis. If the crisis continues, India's ambitious march towards superpower status will face a major challenge. The long-term consequences for India's reputation could be enormous. It may be that given time and proper investment, India can get on top of this. I mean, given the fact that we know when the virus rips through a population the way that it is in India, you do end up with even more dangerous variants emerging. How much should the international community be doing at the moment, given that this is something that could end up affecting all of us? The world should offer sort of all the help to India that they can, certainly. Otherwise, India will just become completely isolated and a melting pot for some sort of newer and deadlier variants that will creep out anyway. The world economy can't afford to have India sealed off indefinitely. Mm. This will have to be dealt with. The self-styled pharmacy of the world needs this international aid to get itself vaccinated. But that, I think, is the only way forward for India and the rest of the world, a massive vaccination programme on a scale that is, is not happening yet. And there's no sign of it. Personally, for you, as an experienced journalist of many years standing, how has it affected you covering this story? It's affected me quite badly because what I think has been very unsettling and upsetting about the situation in New Delhi is that you don't know what's going to happen. Nothing is guaranteed. And all this is very, very against the way we think and function. 
throughout our entire lives, wherever you are in the world, if you fall ill, you expect to be able to get into a hospital and see a doctor. Now, people have been sitting around at home absolutely helpless. They know there's nothing they can do to conjure up a hospital bed or oxygen from nowhere. And I think that sense of helplessness, which I have felt myself, I mean, my friend, for example, who couldn't get the steroids, or the friend whose father was 92. By the way, her husband has tested positive now. He's been very unwell. The doctor again said, you need to be on this steroid. It needs to be an injectable steroid. And so my friend was running around chemists trying to get this steroid, trying to get a syringe, and then trying to find a nurse who would come home to a house where there were COVID-positive people to administer that syringe. She failed. Then she had to find someone who might at least give him the injection while he's sitting in the backseat of his car. So I think what's been very striking about this terrible crisis is a sense of helplessness and the fact that people have felt abandoned and alone. The state isn't there to help you with what you need. And where does that leave you? You're left dependent on WhatsApp and on Twitter and on your phones for the things that you need to save your life. Now, with infections still rising and no end to the crisis in sight, Amrit and Hugh have already seen some of the most harrowing images of their careers. There are some scenes, they say, that will stay with them for life. A young man in Delhi. I read about him in the papers. He came from a very ordinary background. Now, he had got COVID last year and he'd recovered And he was so thrilled to get better and to survive that he donated plasma twice. Now we know plasma therapy doesn't really work, but at that time, people thought that it could help some patients in some serious cases. So he thought, I must do something for society. I'm so grateful to have been treated and to survive. A few weeks ago, his mother contracted COVID-19. She was fine at first, then became much worse. She developed respiratory problems. He put her in an auto rickshaw and he began doing what everyone's been doing, going from hospital to hospital, begging for a bed. And along with her, he was carrying two bits of paper. One was his mother's test result showing that she was positive. The other was a certificate of appreciation, which a local official must have given him because he donated plasma twice. And so he thought that this certificate, which he kept brandishing, he thought that this certificate would melt an official's heart and make him Mm. give his mother a bed. Sadly, his mother died in the auto rickshaw outside one of the hospitals in Delhi. And when a reporter caught up with him, he was weeping and he was bitter. He said, I was there for other people last year. And now when I needed help, there was nobody for me. Another indelible image of the crisis that Amrit can't quite forget is the sight of two brothers who, like so many others, were unable to find an ambulance for their mother. Their mother has been choking and unable to breathe. Now, the mother is very weak. She's in her nighty. She's obviously unable to sit up straight. And so to get her to the hospital, they wedged her in between. So one brother's at the front riding the bike, the other brother is behind him. And in between, they've wedged their mother tightly so that she can remain upright while they drive around looking for a hospital bed. 
Well, they drove around for quite a few hours. They didn't find a hospital bed and their mother died. And the other image is of them taking her away in the same way. This time it's their mother's corpse, their mother's body, which they've got between the two of them, again, sitting upright, wedged tightly between the two so that she doesn't fall. And that's how they drive away with their mother's body to the crematorium. That's such a haunting image. It is. There's been so many, so many cases. I remember a doctor telling me, the same 26-year-old doctor whom I mentioned earlier, she said that they'd had cases when the oxygen had run out. When that happens, of course, there's a little scrum that forms around the patient. The nurses and doctors come. They're trying to resuscitate the patient. And the other patients in the other beds in the same ward know what's happening. They can see what's happening, that the patient is dying. And she said she would look around sometimes and just see on their faces a look of mortal terror and fear that, you know, if the oxygen runs out, that could so easily be me. I could be next. And Hugh, how has covering this story affected you personally? We're getting out this weekend. We're taking the view that we need to get the children out while we still can, basically. It's just desperately sad. Hugh plans to get his children back to the UK, and once he's had his second jab, to return to India to continue his coverage of the crisis. Having the means to get out at all makes you feel guilty when so many friends are left behind. We've been so happy here, and to sort of leave it on this note, in sort of, with this sort of unending, uh, rolling tragedy is desperately sad but we have to sort of try and get out while we can because uh, I think India will be just be sealed off for months to come basically. It's reached a point where if you get sick now you're potentially in real trouble. A few hours after we recorded that interview Hugh sent us an email. The family's pre-flight Covid test results had come back and his wife tested positive for the virus. Their plans to leave the country are on hold for now. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests in New Delhi, South Asia correspondent for The Times, Hugh Tomlinson, and journalist and Times contributor, Amrit Tillen. You can read more of Amrit and Hugh's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.